number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And one of the ways to make this nation even greater is to promote communication and connection among its people. And not just across political lines, but across all those lines of distance that turn up when you become uh, more of a dominator and less of a uh, illuminator. Uh, what's the difference? Well, that's one of the provocative questions that is posed by David Brooks in his uh, change of pace, and it is, a new book, which is called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. It's uh, a book not about politics, not about world affairs, but it has a great impact on politics and world affairs because it's about relationships and how to maintain them. Uh, David Brooks, of course, is a formerly number one New York Times bestselling author. He is a regular columnist at the New York Times. And uh, David, you've been working on this book for four years. And uh, what do you think has happened in with our abilities to actually communicate with each other and to avoid some of the traps you write about in your book? What's happened during those four years that you've been doing this work? Uh, well, it's not good in a couple of weeks. And there's some sort of social and emotional breakdown, especially in American society. Uh, we are, the, as you say on every show, the God's greatest country. But, you know, there are some just sad statistics of the number of people who say they have no close personal friends has gone up by four times. The number of 54 percent of Americans say that no one knows them well. Uh, you know, the number of suicides has gone up by 30 percent this century. The number of depression, mental health. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, some of them have to do with social media and all that. But one of them is we just don't treat each other well. And we don't. And that's because we're not open hearted toward each other. But it's also because. We just don't have the skills. You know, building a relationship in politics or in anything else revolves around performing certain skills well, being a really great conversationalist, um, knowing how to disagree well, knowing how to break up with someone without destroying their heart, knowing something as simple as how to end a conversation gracefully. And we don't have these skills. And so the book is really an attempt to walk people to the process of how do you really come to understand another person and how do you make them feel seen, heard, and understood? I mean, you say uh, in in a piece that's taken from your book, you say that uh, you wanted to learn these skills for reasons of national survival. We evolved to live with small bands of people like ourselves. Now we live in a wonderfully diverse society, but our social skills are inadequate for the divisions that exist. We live in a brutalizing time. And then you talk about a brutalizing difference, a difference between illuminators who have a persistent curiosity about other people and diminishers uh, who are so into themselves they make others feel insignificant. What's an example of how a diminisher would approach a conversation or an interaction dramatically differently from an illuminator? Yeah, so diminishers are, they stereotype and they label 
They don't, they're not really curious about you. I think that's the main reason. The reason a lot of people don't really understand the people around them is because they're not curious. They're too egocentric and self-centered to really ask. And I, I found myself, I don't know if this happens to you, sometimes I'll leave a party. I'll think, you know, that whole time, nobody asked me a question. And I've come to conclude that only about 30% of people are question askers. So that might be perfectly nice, but they're just not that curious. So they don't ask you questions about yourself. An illuminator, on the other hand, is someone who is curious about people and really wants to get inside their head and sort of appreciate, at least taste their point of view, even if they don't agree. So there was a place called Bell Labs, this legendary research facility. And some of the researchers there were super innovative and they wanted to know why are some researchers so much more creative than others, get more patents and make more discoveries. And it wasn't IQ and it wasn't what school they'd gone to. It was the ones who were really creative were in the habit of having breakfast or lunch with an electrical engineer named Harry Nyquist. And he would get inside their heads and he'd talk through their problems and he'd help them walk through towards solutions. So Harry Nyquist is an illuminator, somebody who just like accompanies you and, and makes you feel smarter and makes you smarter. Well, in, in your book, uh, which is called How to Know a Person, you have some handy hints, one of which I, I really do intend to employ because it's so sensible and smart. Uh, you suggest that one of the great ways to show that you're genuinely interested in someone you're talking to you, uh, talking with is to ask them, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, that demonstrates that you're at least concerned, interested, intrigued uh, by the person across from you who you're looking into their eyes. Yeah, and people are too shy about asking about other people's childhoods, but I found people love to talk about their childhood, and you learn a lot from someone. I have a friend who his big job is he's good at hiring people, at, and so he's just phenomenal at it. And he has a method called the take-me-back method which is take me back to high school. Who were you in high school and how has that changed? And you can get, just get a much deeper view into somebody. The other thing I've learned to do is try to make all my conversations storytelling conversations. So I no longer ask, what do you think about this? I ask, how'd you come to believe that? And that way you're asking somebody to tell you a story about some experience they had or some person who shaped their values. And then I collected a bunch of conversational tips in the book. And some of them are like, um, Treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. Uh, you know, it's going to be 100% or 0%. Another is don't be a topper. If you tell me you're having trouble with your um, teenage kid and then I say, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I'm having trouble with my Tommy. It sounds like I'm trying to relate because we both have the same problem. But really what I'm doing is I'm switching the subject of the conversation from you and onto me. And so it's sort of self-centered. Uh, another one, for example, is find the disagreement beneath the disagreement. If we're arguing about something about tax policy or even Middle East policy, there's probably some philosophical reason we see the world differently. So instead of just fighting, we can say, well, what's the, the real base foundation of our disagreement? One other that I've found helpful is keep the gem statement in the center. And so if my brother and I are disagreeing about our dad's health care, there's one thing we agree on, uh, that we both want what's best for our dad. And so if we can keep coming back to that truth, that gem statement, then we'll save the relationship in the middle of a disagreement. Uh, so, David, I have to ask you, who were you in high school? Who I was, uh, well, we've known each other for a long time, but uh, I, I was um, somewhat nerdy guy. I remember I wanted to date 
you know, writing was at the center of my life. I went to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me, uh, and she wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way, way better than that guy. And so that's who I was in high school. I was a guy who was like, obsessed with writing. Whatever happened to Bernice? She went on to become a, a prominent feminist, actually. I got an email from her recently. Uh, there was also a time in high school, I'm reminded, when I really felt seen. When I, I go around and ask people, tell me about a time you really felt seen, somebody really got you. And often people mention teachers, that some teacher saw a potential in me that I didn't even see myself, and that person really changed my life. And when you really can see talent in somebody, you're creating, you're making them blossom. Uh, and I had a, a sort of opposite experience. I was being a smart aleck in high school in 11th grade English. And my teacher, Mrs. Doosnap, in front of the whole class said, David, you're trying to get by on glibness. Stop it. <laughs> on the one hand, I was sort of um, uh, humiliated in front of the whole class. On the other hand, I thought, wow, she really knows me. Uh, so you remember those moments when somebody, even if they're pointing out um, something you really need to work on, uh, it's, it's just an honor when somebody's perceptive about you. Well, let's be perceptive. Coming right back with David Brooks of The New York Times applying some of these ideas and values to the presidential campaign and the attempt to replace Joe Biden as the head of the Democratic ticket. I will be right back with David Brooks coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved. I listen to you every... And on the Michael Medved Show, people get to read the commentary of David Brooks all the time in the New York Times. And whether you agree with it regularly or disagree with it regularly, uh, there are aspects of his brand new book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. There are aspects of this book that will give you aha moments where you'll say, oh, you know, he's right, and I wish I had thought of that, uh, you can take a look at the um, some of the wisdom from the book. It's posted at our website at michaelmedved.com, and information on how you can get uh, a copy of uh, David's most recent book, uh, How to Know a Person. One of the people that you do know is President Biden, and you know him because... Years ago, when he was still a U.S. senator, of course, that covers a whole era, but uh, you were doing a book about the senators whose offices happened to be on the second floor of the Russell's, Russell office building, and that included uh, Joe Biden. And that experience and your uh, acquaintance with uh, Joe Biden over the years uh, led to a, a major column in the New York Times that came out at the beginning of this month. And it was under the heading, Can We Talk About Joe Biden? And you were talking about the attempt by many Democrats to try to say we need somebody else to head the ticket. He's too old. He's too vulnerable. He has too negative an opinion rating. But you suggested it might be a disaster for Democrats. It might be a disaster for the country to try to replace Joe Biden as the nominee of his party at this point. Why? What's the essence of the argument? Yeah, well, the first point I made is, you know, I've had a chance to interview him several times since he became president. 
And the idea that he's a, a doddering, incoherent, senile old man is just not true. He's, um, he's sharp. Believe me, he's very much in charge of that administration. Uh, he's, he, people don't appreciate it. Sometimes they think he's sort of like this doddering old grandpa guy. But he has a chip on his shoulder. He's a bit of a tough guy. He can be a very tough boss. Uh, and he is making the decisions. And I think we saw that very clearly over the last few weeks since the October 7th, since the Hamas attacks, that the policy you see, that's all for Joe Biden. That would not be happening if Joe Biden were not in the White House. There would be a lot less supportive of Israel uh, administration if other Democrats were there. So my first argument is he's not he's not losing it. Um, the second argument is that Joe Biden in 2020 was the prob- was the solution to the problems that Democrats had which was that that party was drifting way too far left. If people remember, there was a debate sometime in that primary process where candidates were asked, would you basically decriminalize the border and basically allow free access to the border? And almost every hand in the Democratic primary process went up, and they all said, yeah, i decriminalize the border, which is just politically and substantively, in my view, insane. And so I think he, he was picked because he was the most moderate of the bunch. And people may not like him uh, or disagree with him uh, or not like his policies. But to my mind, if you want to see Donald Trump lose, he's still the strongest of the Democratic candidates. And if you get rid of him, I think you're probably stuck with Kamala Harris at this point. And to me, that would be a, a much worse outcome for uh, for the country uh, and much better outcome for Donald Trump, which is yes. frankly my I'm conservative. But don't, don't you think Donald Trump would love to run against Kamala Harris? And, and you know, you pick, pick Harris or you pick Gavin Newsom or you pick um, Pete Buttigieg. It's you know, uh, there are a lot of people who just don't resonate with the kind of voters you need to win to win the White House. And and Joe Biden at least has shown he can resonate. Now I'd say the weakest part of my argument is that I thought as inflation came down and unemployment stayed low, but Biden's approval ratings would rise. And so far, that is just not happening. So I'm a little sobered by the fact that his approval numbers are actually going in the wrong direction, not the right direction. What about the the issue of Ukraine? I, I know it's a, an issue you've written about passionately and basically because you are not I don't think you have an isolationist bone in your body. You you believe that the United States needs to continue to be the leading force for decency uh, and humanity in in the broader world. Is that issue uh, going to drag Biden down, especially if he if he's running against Donald Trump or even for that matter, Ron DeSantis? Uh, or let alone Vivek Ramaswamy, who's just particularly outspoken and, to me, loathsome yeah. on that issue. It, could he turn that issue to his so, advantage? Yeah, I think a majority of Americans still support uh, our support for Ukraine and not a majority. And even in the Congress, you get the Republicans are split, and it's hard to hard to tell. It used to be a majority of Republicans in the House supported Ukraine aid. That may, that may be shifting as the months go by. But, you know, I do think if you can stand there as a person who says, you know, America has created an international world order that has allowed the blossoming of democracy and capitalism in the places where it's uh, where it has blossomed. Uh, and if we withdraw, uh, you will you will see the effects that the wolves like Vladimir Putin or or Hamas 
feel that they have some opening. Uh, there's a foreign policy scholar named Robert Kagan who wrote a book called The Jungle Grows Back. And his point was it takes constant tending by the United States and its democratic allies to make sure we live in a civilized society. And as we withdraw, the forces of barbarism take encouragement and they attack. And the, sort of the, the law of the jungle grows back. And to me, it's essential that we maintain our spot in the world, just not as a fighter, not as a sending our troops into battle anywhere, but just offering some economic support, offering other kinds of support, just to make sure we live in a world that we're safe. And uh, I, I, again, there there is such a uh, obvious uh, rallying of the other side in the relationships between Iran and China <clears throat> and Russia being lined up together with North Korea, for goodness sake. Uh, the um, the idea of uh, your your guess as to the Republican nominee against Trump, do you believe that Trump is inevitably it? I'd say he has a 95% chance. Um, there's some possibility that I'm not foreseeing what will happen with these trials uh, next spring. But, uh, you know, if you take all the support that all his opponents have and you added them all up, it still doesn't equal Donald Trump's support. And what what happens is the more trials and the more verdicts against him and a new $10,000 fine seems only to build up his levels of support within the Republican Party. Uh, levels of support for David Brooks and his new book, uh, which uh, has to do with the essential skills of being human, how to know a person. Uh, check it out at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back with the latest on the Middle East. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. Michael Medved's marvelous, malice-making media machine. This is The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show as the world waits for the seemingly inevitable or is it there are now actually voices that are saying it is not inevitable we're talking about the ground uh, invasion of uh, Gaza to wipe out Hamas definitively there has been hesitation. Apparently, it's controversial in Israel, the level of hesitation, because every week uh, that people have been called up out of their jobs, out of their lives, out of their civilian lives, and they're there on the border, they're training and preparing. And uh, yet the United States has pushed hard to get Israel to delay. And what is the purpose of the delay? The purpose of the delay is partially to try to get as many hostages out alive from the Hamas hell. Uh, it was described as a hell-like experience by one of the hostages that was released uh, named Lifshitz uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, but meanwhile, at the UN, uh, it's, it's not a, a surprise that uh, Israel is... Uh, Treated as a, a, a redheaded stepchild by the uh, UN, is treated without much respect uh, from the very creation uh, of the modern state of Israel. 
there have been problems with the UN. At one point, they had a Zionism equals racism uh, resolution that had passed the General Assembly and finally got erased. But the Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres, spoke to the Security Council yesterday and made this controversial statement about the origins of the current war. Uh, listen, clip nine. I have condemned unequivocally the horrifying and unprecedented 7 October acts of terror by Hamas in Israel. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. All hostages must be treated humanely and released immediately and without conditions. And I respectfully note the presence among us of members of their families. Excellencies, it is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Okay, there is no collective punishment of the Palestinian people. There is a desire to prepare the ground. That's what this entire bombing campaign has been about, uh, about the ground movement into uh, Gaza to dismantle Hamas. Uh, the, the idea that uh, basically it didn't happen in a vacuum and uh, that there is an occupation and that there are settlements. Do you know how many settlements there are in, in Gaza? Uh, there were settlements there. They were uprooted and removed with the keys handed to a number of buildings and facilities. That happened back in 2005. And he talks about 56 years of suffocating, of suffocating, he said, suffocating occupation. <laughs> there has not been a single sign or building or monument or street sign or listening post or anything Jewish or Israeli in Gaza since 2005. And, and in fact, in order for, to protect their safety and to avoid conflict, to claim that uh, there is violence against the Palestinian people in Gaza, the violence has been by Islamic Jihad, which is like uh, Hamas itself, a, a client of the Iranian regime. But certainly it hasn't been by, by Israel. And the, the idea that uh, this invasion uh, of Israel that killed 1,400 people and took 222 hostages injured more than 3,000 people, some of them very grievously lost. I was reading about a young nine-year-old boy who lost his eye uh, when the Hamas came into his home on Saturday morning. Uh, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, Eli Cohen, uh, 
took uh, umbrage and and rebuked Guterres for what he had said. Uh, this is the Israeli ambassador at the United Nations, clip 11. Young babies, children, are held in Gaza. This is beyond imagination. A living nightmare of three, ten years old, Avigail, three years old, Maya, 17 years old, Raz, four years old, Aviv, two years old, Ariel, four years old. There are just a few, a few of the many children and babies that have not seen evil. They have not caused evil, but they are victims of evil. These kids witness horror which cannot be described by word. Mr. Secretary General, in what world do you live? Definitely, this is not our world. And uh, then the Secretary General uh, responded, rejecting Israel's claims that anything that he had said had justified the Hamas attacks. He spoke to the Security Council. I am shocked by the misrepresentations by some of my statement yesterday in the Security Council as if, as if I was justifying acts of terror by Hamas. This is false. It was the opposite. In the beginning of my intervention yesterday, I clearly stated, and I quote, I have condemned unequivocally the horrifying and unprecedented 7 October acts of terror by Hamas in Israel. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring, and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. End quote. Indeed, I spoke of the grievances of the Palestinian people. And in doing so, I also clearly stated, and I quote, that the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. Okay. Uh, again, uh, obviously, he had to take away that, uh, and not to repeat that one context for his statement, which is the attacks did not take place in a vacuum. If that doesn't sound uh, as if what he's saying is that the victims of one of the most hideous attacks uh, in, in all of history, I mean, certainly in modern history, in modern times of the 21st century, the level of that brutality, and especially now with the tapes they're putting forward, uh, it, it's extraordinary, and that's why it's encouraging when the President of the United States actually speaks up and talks about the Gaza death toll and the distrust of Palestinian sources. We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Outrageous. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show.
And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, President uh, Biden uh, expressed some doubts about some of the exaggerated death tolls that are being put out by the Palestinian uh, Authority and uh, by the spokespeople for Hamas in particular. Now, they're not the same, and there, in fact, was a brief civil war between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, which Hamas won. And uh, that's how they took over in Gaza uh, after they had won an election, which was the last election. It was in 2006. They haven't had an election in either uh, Gaza or the West Bank or anywhere in the Palestinian Authority since then, which shows how difficult it's going to be to actually uh, see or set up some kind of functioning Palestinian state if that continues to be the goal of U.S. policy. But uh, here was uh, President Biden uh, talking about some of the distorted information that was provided, for instance, about that Al-Ali hospital in Gaza that wasn't destroyed, but there was a good deal of damage. And there were the the estimates now by people who have actually researched it is that there were uh, there may have been as many as 50 people who died there, which is horrible. But, of course, they gave the number 500 people who have died. No one, there's no evidence of it because you can actually look at the pictures and the the missile that was not an Israeli missile. It was a rocket misfired by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That, um, that rocket did not leave a crater or blow up or act like other rockets, certainly one that wasn't aimed at the hospital. In any event, here was uh, President Biden speaking, uh, I think, frankly, sanely and reassuringly about the reports of the ongoing Gaza death toll. This is clip 14. Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed. And as the price of waging a war, I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Okay, and uh, that actually goes together with a... Uh, very important column uh, written <clears throat> by Brett Stevens, who has spent time in Israel. He was at one point editor of the Jerusalem Post. And in fact, he's over there now. He was going to come on our show, and I hope he will soon. But uh, Brett writes in the New York Times, Western audiences will never grasp the nature of the current conflict until they internalize one central fact in Israel as in every other dem democracy political and military officials sometimes lie but journalists hold them to account tell the stories they want to tell and don't live in fear of midnight knocks on the door the Palestinian territories by contrast are republics of fear fear of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and fear of Hamas in Gaza 
The Palestinians are neither more nor less honest than people elsewhere, but as in any tyrannical or fanatical regime, those who stray from the approved line put themselves at serious risk. This is a truth that only rarely slips out, but when it does, it's revealing. During the first major Israel-Hamas war in 2008 and 2009, Palestinian groups claimed the death toll was mostly civilian, with roughly 1,400 people killed. But a Palestinian doctor working in Gaza's Shifa hospital told a different story. Palestinian doctor. The number of deceased stands at no more than 500 to 600, he said. Most of them are youths between the ages of 17 to 23 who were recruited to the ranks of Hamas, uh, who sent them to the slaughter, said this Palestinian doctor. Tellingly, according to the Israeli news site Ynet, the doctor wished to remain unidentified out of fear for his life. Or take the case of Hani al-Aga, a Palestinian journalist who was jailed for weeks and tortured by Hamas in 2019. In that case, the Palestinian journalist syndicate took the extraordinary step of condemning al-Aga's arrest and torture as an attempt to intimidate journalists in Gaza Strip who are uh, subject to repressive police authority. That's in quotes. Yet outside of a few news releases, the story received little coverage in wider media. Only rarely do Western audiences understand the full extent to which information emerging from Gaza is suspect, at least until it has been extensively and independently corroborated by journalists who aren't living in fear of Hamas and don't need to protect someone who is. Readers who wouldn't normally be inclined to believe man-in-the-street interviews in, say, Pyongyang in North Korea or regime pronouncements coming out of the Kremlin should be equally skeptical about the phrase Palestinian officials say. And uh, that goes to especially a fraught period of time like this when the next step remains unclear. There's a significant report by Stephen Erlanger, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times. And he has a piece under the heading, Israel Plans to Demolish Hamas, But Who Will Govern Gaza? As Israeli soldiers have massed to enter Gaza in force, the defense minister has promised them you see Gaza now from a distance, you will soon see it from inside. Yet despite this vow from the minister, Yoav Gallant, it is not clear when Israel will mount a ground invasion. And if the government appears hesitant to enter Gaza more than two weeks since the Hamas attack that killed more than 1,400 Israelis, there are good reasons to be. What lies ahead is a kind of sustained urban warfare that the country's military forces have not encountered for nearly a decade, and in pursuit of a political end that remains unclear. Aside from vanquishing Hamas, which controls Gaza, so that it can never again threaten Israeli citizens. Hovering over everything is the political conundrum of what happens to Gaza after the war ends. Once in, how does Israel get out? Come uh, once it has dismantled Hamas, if it can, 
to whom will it hand the keys? If Hamas no longer governs Gaza, who will? Uh, Tom Beckett, a retired lieutenant general of the British Army and executive director of the Middle Eastern East for the International Institute of Strategic Studies, wrote in a brief analysis, no matter how successful the operation proves in defeating Hamas as a military organization, Hamas's political imperative and the population support for the resistance will continue. Israel either reoccupies Gaza to control it or by withdrawing after an offensive uh, uh, seeds ground to people for whom the resistance is existence and what they call the resistance. However complete a uh, military victory, in other words, in, in an interview, a political goal that is too ambitious could result in frustration or failure. As uh, this decision shapes up, Erlanger writes about the possibility of UN involvement. The difficulty there is none of the sides to this conflict trust the UN or have, can rely on the UN. One of the things that's fascinating is uh, the, uh, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has proposed a what seems a much more workable idea, which is assembling an international coalition, including some of the same countries like France and Germany and Italy that are supporting Ukraine in its struggle to unite in a coalition against Hamas. And uh, that does not necessarily involve any occupation of space, but involves setting up an alternative uh, government that could actually work in the Gaza Strip. Will that happen? Who knows? Nor is the timing public yet about when the ground mission begins. Uh, we will find out and find out about what's next for Congress in this greatest nation on God's green earth. <laughs> 